Good afternoon and happy Friday, you guys. Uh, I hope you have been having a wonderful week. I am here and I am ready to discuss once again with you some stuff that's been going on recently in my life. Now, ecclesiastically, I hope I'm using that word right, um, recently I have preached my first sermon at a nursing home, and that went all over really well. I had a really great time. My fiance Brigitte was able to be there with me, and it was just um, really a great experience to go up in front of these people and uh, give them a nice sermon and speak the gospel to them and have them respond with hymns of praise and prayer. What they have going on over there is real nice, and it serves the Lord. I also got to worship lead on a big Sunday morning, well, two services on a Sunday morning, over at Webster Gardens. And I, of course, was pretty afraid to do that in the week, in the week leading up to that. However, I, you know, when, when it came time Friday and then Saturday, I was just wholeheartedly excited, honestly, uh, to get to do that. And it was really a blessing for me to be able to uh, lead worship. Especially being on live stream and everything, it was a unique and new experience. Uh, it's, so I could, you know, see the camera moving, following me around when I moved. But in terms of my field working education, that's what I've been doing recently. Now, uh, besides that, I've been able to see some good stuff over at Missouri Baptist University. Our friend got to solo in Handel's Messiah. She sang, I know that my Redeemer liveth, which is excellent because we need to always remember that the resurrection is a key part in the Christ event. Jesus didn't only die on the cross, but he rose again. And knowing that he lives is a central part of not only our theology, but our, our faith as Christians, because it's what gives our faith meaning. Because if Christ didn't rise, then we are, you know, wasting our time. <laughs> but uh, my favorite solo sectional in Messiah was, And the trumpet shall sound. And this is about when the trumpet shall sound in Revelation and Jesus comes down on his white horse or whatever have you. And the dead shall rise. And the reason why I like it so much is it's the joy of... Christ coming and defeating death once and for all uh, because we know according to Revelation that he holds the key to death in his hands and when he comes again he will raise all the dead and that's when he will judge. Regardless, I think last week I gave a description of Galatia or I don't know if it was I gave a description of Paul but regardless I'd like to give you guys a description of what life was like in Corinth, the city of Corinth back in the day. So let's go into our theological section. First things first, guys, Corinth was a dangerous place to voyage to, to go to. The poet Horace once wrote that not for everyone is the voyage to Corinth. So you could get to Corinth one of two ways. Or I guess <laughs> there really is no dichotomy in real life. You could, I guess, mix up the two. But 
Um, you could either walk or you could take a boat. Now, if you wanted to go by sea in a boat, you'd have to go all the way around this peninsula. Like if you think of Maine on a political map of the United States, and then you imagine that there's no Canada north of there, uh, it, like you'd have to uh, sail all the way around that to get to Corinth. And of course, back in the day, sailing on the ocean in a boat was, you know, all the odds were stacked against you in terms of you surviving. Um, being a uh, seaman was one of the dangerous jobs, and, or most dangerous jobs, and that's why, you know, only certain civilizations way back, like the Phoenicians, were known for being seafarers, and why more modern civilizations like the, the Portuguese uh, were able to dominate trade because of their mastery of seafaring. But anyways, back to the point, uh, it was really dangerous to go on boats and try to get through narrow channels to get to Corinth. And so your second choice was to go straight west from Athens to Corinth and walk 50 miles through rugged terrain. So in Corinthians, you get this Paul that's tired and hurting. He's upset sometimes, but he also has, you know, a lot of joy mixed with that exhaustion. It's described as a pretty immoral place, uh, no more immoral than you might see on Stars' Spartacus or something like that. It was called Wealthy Corinth at the time. It was the first city to hold gladiator fights. And in fact, uh, they had something called the Isthmian Games. And this was big money because all Greece came to see them. And it was essentially the, uh, the size of the Olympics as we think of them today, but it happened every two years. And it only happened in Corinth. It was pretty metropolitan, uh, if you think about it. The language of business and of the normal people, quote-unquote, it was Greek. But the upper class and the government and the aristocracy was Latin. And it was described as more Greek than Rome, but more Roman than Athens. Now, the problem that they ran into here, why it was like this, was... Because it was a city that was taken over by Rome, so they destroyed the city, the Romans. It was a Greek city. Romans destroyed it. And when they rebuilt it, uh, they allowed a whole bunch of, you know, newly freed prisoners and slaves and, you know, I guess, you know uh, bad people to go and repopulate it. And so they were all, of course, speaking Greek. But they also gave war veterans of the Roman army free land there to kind of keep a, uh, an eye on it and make a Roman military presence. But anyways, going back to that immorality, uh, you could call someone in the old world a Corinthian, and it would be an insult that they, you know, lived immoral lives. And one could be a, say you were a, a bad influence, like a peer pressure uh, guy, you'd be called a, called a Corinthianizer for trying to make people live like a Corinthian. It was the third city of the ancient world in size and industry and money. I believe it was called the equivalent of Las Vegas, L.A., and New York combined. So there was the lifestyle of Las Vegas and the amount of different cultures and 
ideas of LA and the business-like uh, nature of New York uh, all in one city. People were very pompous. They would Rich people would put up monuments in their own honor. And uh, you didn't have you know, your name history or your social status out of family heritage or nepotism. It was all about um, how much money you can make and how well you could argue. So you can see why people compare it a lot you know, to a modern city here in America or something. And so uh, Paul had a hard time of helping the Corinthians fit or adapt Christian identity into this culture. But yeah, uh, Corinth was the Panama of the time. Um, so if you had enough money, you could put your ship basically on these these rails or think of like train tracks and they would drag your boat all the way through this uh, port town of Corinth. And it being a port town, it also brought in a lot of trade from different places, and it became a epicenter of metal manufacturing. It was easy to defend because people didn't want to walk there, and uh, if you came in by boat, they had you know you under control. But yeah, it was kind of you know come one come all there in Corinth with all the freedmen, the criminals repopulating uh, Roman veterans. Because back in the day, guys, slaves had different names than, you know, free people or naturally free people. Uh, take, for example, from the Bible, uh, Onesimus, the slave of Philemon. Uh, Onesimus means useful. So that's, uh, it's, you know, hard to think that um, someone could be named useful, like they're a tool or something. But that was the reality of back then. And... Paul is able to use that name as a pun when he converts him to Christianity. And he says, you know, he used to be useful as a slave, but now he is useful to me and the church in our ministry. But I guess what I'm trying to get to here and get at is, uh, in this new city of Corinth, where all these freed men that used to be slaves, you could, all of a sudden you could have a new name. And you could start all over. No longer did you have to have your slave name. And you proved yourself through your work ethic, how much money you're able to make. There was, you know, all the means to make a successful business in Corinth. You just had to have the work ethic. And what this meant for the church there uh, was that uh, not many, and he says this, Paul writes this in Cor Corinthians, not many of not many members of the church were of noble birth, but of course that implies that there were some. Uh, and I guess this could um, lay out how the Christian church ought to be uh, in society where there is no stratification of noble birth, low, slave, but no, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. But we know as Christians that uh, Corinth was an important place for Paul. It's where uh, Gallio was the proconsul, and he kept Paul from getting in trouble in like 49 or 50 AD. And then Paul ended up staying there for about 18 months where he got acquainted with Priscilla and Aquila, where uh, he would travel with them later. And he, well, they were also tent makers like Paul, and they attended the synagogue. And this is also where... Um, People refused to accept the preaching 
uh, of Paul in Acts 18.6. And Paul said, I'm no longer going to speak in the synagogues uh, where he traveled. He says, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So that's huge too, because I'm a Gentile and I know a lot of Gentiles that listen to this. Another interesting thing about Corinth is just, you know, how hard it was to, um, you know, bring this Christian way of life into Corinth because of their, you know, mixture of L.A., Las Vegas, and New York uh, culture. We know that Paul wrote at least four letters, though two, only two, are canonized. Um, he mentions in 2 Corinthians 2.1 that before the first and second letter, um, he made a painful visit. So, and, uh, so that means that the Corinthian church was, you know, making some poor decisions and how they were acting. And, you know, so poor Paul had to stay there all the time for like months at a time. And he also wrote Romans, uh, the, the epistle to the Romans, while he was in Corinth. But before we move on uh, to some closing uh, words, why don't we go over a little bit of what we learned from Corinthians. Uh, so we learned from Corinthians uh, that church workers, you should stay away from developing cults of personality. Because right from the get-go in 1 Corinthians, Paul's angry about uh, the church members that are still being infants in Christ because everyone is obsessed with, you know, Apollos, Paul, and he says, you know, who, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. But of course he says, uh, you know, they were only the ones that planted the seeds and God is the one who makes them grow. Kind of like how Augustine says that a doctor gives medicine, but uh, God, <laughs> you know, allows the medicine to work and make someone better. But also, you know, they were obsessed with just following, you know, people called sophists. So people that were good at rhetoric and convincing each other and, you know, personality. It's like people that are obsessed with watching their favorite personalities on YouTube where, and they all, you know, argue with each other and stuff. So Paul puts in there in First uh, Corinthians 3.18, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think that you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. For it's written... He catches the wise in their craftiness. Another pseudo-funny thing that I find in Corinthians is, you know, Paul ends up saying, I speak nothing but Christ crucified. Uh, because, you know, before, he was trying to engage with the poets and stuff, like when he was in Acts and when he was speaking in Athens. And finally, um, this is not, of course, part of the scriptures, but 80 years later, uh, Clement... St. Clement writes a letter from or to the Corinthians and he's saying basically not you know not much has changed in your guys's attitude you're continuing in your factionalism and the way your way of life not the Christian way of life what would Paul say you know he was very disappointed just a really unique part of history so here is a you know primary source document of how the Corinthian church was continuing to act 80 years later. This is from St. Clement's letter to the Corinthians. This is a astounding piece of history. Quote, Take up the epistle of the blessed Apostle Paul. When did he, or what did he write to you at the time when the gospel first began to be preached? Truly, 
under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote to you concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos, because even then parties had been formed among you. But that inclination for one above another entailed less guilt upon you, inasmuch as your partialities were then shown towards apostles, already of high reputation, and towards a man whom they had approved. But now reflect who those are that have perverted you and lessen the renown of your far-famed brotherly love. It is disgraceful, beloved, yea, highly disgraceful and unworthy of your Christian profession, that such a thing should be heard of as that the most steadfast and ancient church of the Corinthians should, on account of one or two persons, engage in sedition against its presbyters. And this rumor has reached not only us, but those also who are unconnected with us, so that, through your infatuation, the name of the Lord is blasphemed, while danger is also brought upon yourselves. So isn't that so interesting, guys? So they're looking back 80 years later, and they're like, wow, you guys in Corinth, you are one of the ancient you know, Christian churches. You're going to be remembered in the history books one day. You know, as they end up being, as we have them, they're the letter, the two letters to them in our Bible. And he's talking about, you had apostles at your church telling you word for word, you know, inspired words of how to act and behave. But still, you're not acting in brotherly love towards another. And it's disgraceful <laughs> is, is actually what it is. And here's the saddest part is that, not only were people in Corinth hearing of the Corinthian church's, you know, misconduct, but people, you know, Clement was hearing all the way far off about, you know, their bad behavior and, you know, factions and all that. And not only them far away, but people that aren't even Christian were hearing these rumors and, you know, hearing about the bad behavior and, bad brotherly love that wasn't happening and sad. So I guess what we learn here is what Jesus told us in John 13, or told his disciples, sorry, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So I think that's it for this week. Uh, let me pray real quick for you guys and then I'll wish you a happy weekend and wonderful week. Until next time I talk to you, please bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Lord and giver of life, thank you so much for all that you've done for us, both here on earth and uh, what you've prepared for us in heaven. Give us the joy and patience in our vocations and all the jobs and uh, educational roles that we hold and fulfill each day uh, to you and for you and to do it with joy that others would look at the work that we've done and say, wow, I want to be like him or her. Uh, I wonder why they do you know, such great things like that. Hold us to the same standard that Paul would hold us to and help us to live by your word, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great weekend, everybody. I'll see you next time.